Take your Bibles this morning, Revelation chapter 2 is where we find ourselves. We took a break last week. Today we're returning to the seven letters that Jesus dictated to the Apostle John to be sent to the seven churches that are identified in the book of Revelation, which were located in Asia Minor. The first church was Ephesus, and it was branded as the Loveless Church. And Jesus' statement to them was, repent. Repent of your lovelessness. Return to where you were, lest I come and remove you from active ministry. Revelation 2, 1 through 7. The church in Smyrna was next, presented as the persecuted church. She received no criticism, just simply commended. Commended for her faithfulness, encouraged to remain faithful even unto death, Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. The church of Pergamum was third and was confronted as compromising pure scriptural doctrine. And they also were instructed to repent lest Christ come to make war against them. That's the last person I would want to make war against me is the Lord Jesus, but he certainly puts that out there as a possibility, Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And today, we arrive at the fourth letter to the fourth church, to the church of Thyatira. And Thyatira is known as the Tolerant Church. So just as we've done each week, I want to give us just a little context about them. Uh, and really, this context today, some of it anyway, is excessively important to us understanding what Jesus is saying as he writes this letter to them. Uh, Thyatira was first established by the Hittite kingdom around 3000 BC. Thyatira was located about 45 miles southeast of Pergamum. Thyatira fell under Persian rule around 500 BC, then under Alexander the Great. And after he passed away, he left the region and that city to one of his generals, Seleucus, and uh, he continued there for time. Unlike Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira was a smaller city, not a large city, and she lacked many of the amenities that the other three uh, enjoyed. I think when we think of Thyatira, we should think of them basically as what we would call a blue-collar community, right? Hard-working, salt-of-the-earth kind of people who just, you know, eke out a living. That's kind of who they really were. Now, Thyatira was filled with tradesmen and tradeswomen, and each of these trades had their own guild, or what today we would call a union, there were potters and tanners and bakers and metal workers and slave dealers and textile makers. But the, the most significant industry of Thyatira was that of dyeing cloth. Thyatira is best known for its purple cloth. And they shipped this cloth all around the region. Now, this is something, go ahead and show, show the next slide. There's a picture of the vat of the purple and some splotches there, but then that deep purple below. That's what they were really known for. Now, each of these trade unions, this is important to grasp because this will help us as we move into the letter. Each of them had its own patron god that it looked to 
to help that uh, union succeed. Go ahead and switch to the next slide if you would. The coin that you see there on the screen, there are many coins that were minted in Thyatira and this one shows um, a metal worker who is beating out a helmet for the goddess Diana. So perhaps Diana was the patron god of the metal workers. And it was required uh, that every member of the union at least go through the motions of worshiping the god of that union in order to be in good standing with that union. Now given the fact that the majority of the people who were in Thyatira and part of these unions were pagans, and uh, given that they had no problem recognizing the plethora of gods that existed uh, in their worship system and the various practices that accompanied that, uh, the only people, really, who would have had an issue with this patron god kind of thing would be Christians, as we can imagine. They would have a problem. And so given this context, we can understand the difficulty that Christians faced as they lived and worked there in Thyatira, and we're going to come back to that difficulty. Uh, it will become a main part of my talk here in just a few moments. Uh, one other point of context that I want us to see today was that Thyatira was a military city. Not only was she a city of... Um, of, of industry, but she was also a, a military city strategically located to be a buffer uh, for Pergamum should an enemy from the east decide to mount an invasion. And so there was a big cohort of military people stationed there to kind of be that first buffer for those who might be coming after uh, Pergamum. So what we find about Thyatira is that um, although they were not large, and although they were not culturally influential, they were nonetheless important. They were important for their industry and they were important for their military presence. And because of this, then Pergamum, which was a much bigger city, and a much richer city, poured a lot of resources into Thyatira to keep her uh, strong and to keep her loyal to protect their own interests. So with that said, a little bit of context, let's read the letter that Jesus dictated to John, which was then sent to the church in Thyatira. Verse 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching 
who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Father, I pray this morning you would give us ears to hear, that we would uh, cooperate with you in that, and that we would be eager to hear what you have to say to this church and to us individually as well. Uh, may you speak words of life and forgiveness into the hearts of those who have yet to receive Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And may you speak words of transformation and of sanctification into the hearts of those who have. And Lord, together then may we bring honor and glory to you and be beneficial to the community around us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at verse 18 again, we have seen in, in the other letters uh, how Jesus used some form of the introduction that he made to John. He uses some form of that to introduce himself to each church. And, of course, he continues that trend here with Thyatira. But in this particular case, uh, Jesus makes a change in the wording. It's an important change. I want us to take a look at it. Verse 18 again, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. We find here that Jesus introduces himself to the church in Thyatira as the Son of God. But to John, when he was first introducing himself to John, he introduced himself as the Son of Man. What's the difference? What's the difference and why the difference? Well, the term Son of Man is about Jesus' identification with humanity through his incarnation as Savior, as High Priest, uh, as our advocate with the Father. The term Son of God is about his deity who with eyes of fire sees through the pretense of false righteousness and with feet like burnished bronze tramples the winepress of the wrath of God with unrepentant sinners. The apostle John only knew Jesus as the son of man, the one who sympathizes with our weaknesses and, and gives his life for our sins. But the, the church of Thyatira was about to know Jesus as the son of God who judges unrepentant sin and unrepentant sinners. And so this change of son of God from son of man is a very serious and significant change in the way that Jesus identifies himself to this particular church. Now verse 19, we find there the things that the Lord was pleased with. The things that he found among them that he could commend them for. He says, I know your works. And by the way, church, just always be aware that the Lord knows you. 
He knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He truly does. And that's something to remember. He says, I know your works. And then he lists them. I know your works of love and of faith and of service and of patient endurance. And I think you would agree with me that that's a list that any church would want Jesus to see in them and would want him to commend them for. I I would hope and pray that the Lord might see some of that uh, in us here today. Uh, But there's more. It's more than that. He says to them that you're growing. You're growing in these commendable works. He, He makes it clear here that Within this church, uh, there are people who are making serious strides in their spiritual growth and in their representation of Christ. So that's the good news. But despite the, the glowing report of love and faith and service and patient endurance, there was something majorly amiss. And we find that as we come to verses 20 and 21. We discover that like their counterpart there in Pergamum, the church in Thyatira was tolerating heretical teaching in their assembly. And we discover that Jesus is taking this departure from the truth very personally. He calls out an individual. We don't like that when it happens. Usually we feel a little uncomfortable with that. But he doesn't, and he calls out a woman of the church whom he refers to as Jezebel, who, according to Jesus, is a self-appointed prophetess. There's no reason to believe that this woman went through any kind of training, who was recognized by the church elders or anything else. It's it's pretty much she determined what she was, and she announced what she was, and people began to accept her as that. And we see that in her self-appointed role as prophetess here in the church, that she had been seducing and been teaching Jesus' servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat meat sacrificed to idols. That's a pretty serious allegation, if you ask me. Now let's take a moment to just consider who this woman in the church at Thyatira, who she might be. Now, it's highly unlikely that her actual name was Jezebel. I think that we're safer to assume that Jesus is simply using that name in symbolic identification with the Jezebel that we find in 1 Kings chapter 29 all the way through to 2 Kings chapter 9. She takes up quite a space in, in, in the Old Testament scripture. Now concerning this woman, whomever she may be, um, John Walvoord has uh, in his extensive commentary on the book of Revelation tells us that in some of the original manuscripts, instead of wording that would be translated that woman, which we find in verse 20 in our ESV or your King James Version or whatever, Uh, that in some of the original manuscripts you will find wording there that would be better translated your woman or your wife. And if you remember that these letters are being addressed to the angel or to the messenger to one of the elders of each of those churches, we can understand that very possibly this woman could be the wife 
of the pastor of this church. Now, if that is true, and I say if that is true, then it would certainly fit with the analogy of the actual Jezebel, who was the wife of the king of Israel, Ahab. You would have then that example back in Israel's life. You would have this example in the church of Thyatira, where you have two men who have authority over a group of people whose wives then step forward and is asserting influence over the people leading them into serious sin against Yahweh. Now, as interesting as that thought might be, that this might be the wife of the pastor of the church, I don't, really don't want to press that too hard or too far. Because ultimately, it does not matter if she was the wife of the pastor or not, or whether she was just a prominent woman in the church, what does matter is that she had access to the pulpit of the church and she was using that access to espouse godless ideals just like Jezebel did in Israel. So let's take a moment to learn something about that original Jezebel uh, from the Old Testament scripture. The Bible tells us that she was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was the king of the Sidonians. Now, that means that she was Gentile. The Sidonians were not Jewish. So she is a Gentile pagan. And King Ahab, or Ahab who became king of Israel, uh, met her and uh, fell in love with her, I guess, or fell in lust with her or something, I'm not quite sure. But he, he married her, right? and brought her, a pagan, right into the very authority structure of the nation. The Sidonians worshipped the false god Baal, as many of the nations around them did at the time. And Jezebel, being the wife of the king, was instrumental then in promoting Baal worship, uh, and it spread across Israel. In fact, it was under her enthusiastic promotion of Baal worship and her husband's allowance of that that Baal worship reached its pinnacle in Israel. Just as a quick note, uh, you'll remember that um, Baal worship in Israel is the, is the context of, um, uh, is it Elijah or Elisha? Thank you. Elijah, who went to war against them with, the, remember the the, um, the altars, the two altars, right? And whoever's God brings fire down, and uh, ultimately Yahweh brought the fire down, and then he killed 450 of those prophets, and she lost her brains and said, I'm going to kill you today. Okay, that's kind of the context there. So what was so bad about Baal worship? Well, Baal worship was awash with all forms of sensuality, there was ritualistic prostitution, and there was animal and, at times, human sacrifices that were offered to Baal. And we know that Israel fell into that, and they fell into that for a long time because we have Scripture that tells us that there were Israelites who would go to the temple to worship Yahweh and then later on go to another temple that was in honor of Molech, and they would sacrifice their children on a, in the fire. 
So we know that they had this problem. So how did a Jezebel-type influence find a home in a Christian church in Thyatira? Well, I want you to remember how I told you that uh, Thyatira was filled with trade unions. And I want you to remember that each trade union had a patron god that it worshipped because they believed that that patron god would look after them and help them to be successful and that the union members of that uh, guild, that they were expected at least to go through the motions of worshiping that God. To not worship that God would be to run a risk that you would offend that God and then we're not going to be profitable this year and they're not going to tolerate that. And of course, this would obviously create a problem for Christian workers. It would create a problem for them because they could not remain faithful to Christ and engage in pagan worship practices. And this would leave them in a situation where they would basically be unemployable. Unemployable because they would refuse to acquiesce to the norms of the culture. And that's a serious problem. Here I am, a follower of Christ a believer that Jesus is God incarnate and is the only God, and I reject all others, but if I do not go along with the rules and regulations of my union, I don't have a job. And if I don't have a job, we don't have any food on the table. In fact, we don't even have a table. And that becomes a real problem, right? Would you agree that's a problem? Yeah, it's a problem. Unless. It's a problem unless... They are taught that there is a way to remain faithful to Christ on one hand and to participate in the pagan expectations on the other hand. And this is most likely what is going on and taking place in the church of Thyatira. And I want to dig into that context a little deeper with an illustration. Before I get to that illustration, there's something else I want to tell you. I want to tell you this, that there was a popular teaching. Speaking of this dual teaching, there was a popular teaching in some Christian circles. Paul speaks of it quite a bit and was forced to battle with it in his ministry. And that teaching is called Gnosticism. Gnosticism. The basics of Gnosticism are these that the material world is evil. Therefore, the material world is of no consequence to God. He doesn't care. And of course, this would include the human body, because the human body is part of the material world. The teaching went on to say that the spiritual world is where God's attention is. That is what he does care about. So as long as one is engaged with Christ inwardly, what took place with the body was really of little to no concern to God. And perhaps you can appreciate that this would create a dualism that would allow someone to attend church on Sunday morning and sing How Great Thou Art and then go to the temple of their union's pagan God on Monday evening 
to participate in the ritual sacrifices, to eat the meat of those sacrifices, and even to engage in the ritual sexual practices that was part of worshiping that God. How could they do that? Because perhaps they're being taught that God doesn't care about what goes on in your body. It's going to perish. It's going to burn up. The only thing that's eternal, the only thing that matters to him is what's on the inside. It's, it's what's in your heart that matters to him. Also, Gnosticism taught that there was a secret or hidden knowledge that one could obtain if they grew in the practices of the teaching. And this very likely is what Jesus is referring to in verse 24, where he talks about those in the church who were learning the deep things of Satan. Now we come to the illustrative story that I wanted to tell. I want you for a moment to put yourselves in the shoes of a pagan who's living there in Thyatira, and you are part of the textile dyeing trade. And throughout the years of your employment, you have been faithful to meet the requirements of the worship of your pagan god. You've been a very good pagan. And you, though, come in contact with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Someone shares with you their faith, and because of that contact, because of that contact, you repent of your sin, and you turn in faith to Jesus Christ, embracing Him as your Savior and Lord. And this Christian who led you to faith in Christ is a is a good Christian. They've been sitting under Pastor Brett's teaching on discipleship. And so they are developing that personal relationship with you and they are discipling you in the truths of Scripture. And as that happens, your eyes open and you begin to realize that you cannot continue to participate in the pagan rituals that are part of your past. And so you realize if I'm going to follow Jesus, this has got to go. I can't do this. There is no way. I can be dedicated to Jesus and, and, and go into these pagan practices. But as you contemplate that, you also know what that's going to mean for your employment. You know that if you stop acknowledging your patron God and you don't show up for the sacrifices and you don't participate with the ritual prostitution and you don't do all the things that they do to make that God happy so that your union will be blessed and your trade will be blessed, you know that's very likely going to cost you your livelihood. So what do you do? What do you do when you wake up to the reality of Jesus Christ and who he is and his demands on your life to follow him exclusively and yet you live in a culture that demands that you do just exactly the opposite? What do you do? Well, in this particular case, perhaps you learn about a certain prophetess in the church who has been elevated to the position of such stature. And she is teaching that, um, that God is only really concerned about your soul. 
He's really only concerned about your spirit. And, and, and what you do in the body is really not anything he cares too terribly much about. She tells you that, that you don't have to lose your job because of your faith in Christ. You, you, you can worship Christ on the inside, and then you can go through the motions of the pagan rituals on the outside. And if you do this, everything's going to be fine. Because you'll be making your friends and your co-laborers happy. And you'll be making the Lord happy because on the inside you are recognizing who he is and you're fully committed to him in your soul and in your spirit. And I believe that that is what's going on in Thyatira. And Jesus is not happy about it. And so he calls out the church and he calls out the false prophetess. He calls her out for her false teaching and he calls out the church for its toleration of her false teaching. And Jesus informs the church that he has given this false teacher time to repent. What does that mean? Well, I think it likely means that since this is a, quote, Christian assembly of people, that God most likely sent someone or some ones who were doctrinally sound, who were spiritually mature believers, to confront her. To tell her this isn't right, this isn't biblical. You have to remember at this point, all of the New Testament is finished with, except the book of Revelation. So they've got the teaching. They know what's supposed to be going on in the local New Testament church. And so someone comes along and says, this isn't right. You need to stop doing this. And they would probably call for her repentance. But according to Jesus, she refuses. She refuses I don't want to hear that. Get out of my face. Don't talk to me about that. You have no right. Where is your authority coming from? I'm a prophetess. What are you? Now, as we come to the idea of a prescription, verses 22 through 23, it is obvious that the prescription for this woman is to repent. And for those who are following her teaching, to repent. But as we have seen... She refuses. So given her refusal to hear and to respond to Jesus' call to repent, there's only one recourse left. And that is judgment. Judgment. The Son of God is going to bring down judgment. Using the language of sexual sin, Jesus says that he will throw her onto a sickbed. Now, there's nothing sexual about a sickbed, but the reality is, is that the word sick is not in the original manuscripts. When you go to the best of the Greek manuscripts, sick isn't found there, only bed. I will throw her onto a bed. Now, the implication of the context is that this bed that Jesus is going to throw her on, so to speak, is a bed of suffering. And so the word sick is added to give us that understanding. But then he goes on to say, and those who commit adultery with her, and there we have a very clear, sinful, sexual context and, and, and idea going on here. He says, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation, unless they... Repent of 
her works. Now, I, I, I read those last few words that way for a reason. Because if we look at it carefully, it, it, it explains something that we need, to, uh, we need to understand and grasp of what is going on here and what the Lord Jesus is going to do. What we find in Jesus' words is that the die is cast for the false teacher. In other words, she has been given opportunities to repent. And she has refused. And the words of Jesus here make it very clear. There is no more time for repentance. There is no more time for saying, I'm sorry. There is no more time to fall on your face before me and cry and, 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 and show proper contrition. I'm done with you. And you will be judged. And that's the final word. But on the other hand, those who had bought into her teaching, it's clear there remains an opportunity for forgiveness. If they will repent of her teaching. In other words, if they will wake up and see that this is not biblical, that this is not godly, that this is not the teaching of Christ or his apostles, and they are willing to turn from that and, and come to the Lord with a heart of repentance, he will wash them clean. So there's opportunities for them. But in this case, for the false teacher, there is no more opportunity. And what about those who have bought into her teaching who choose not to repent? I think we could assume that there might be some who would say, who would wake up and get with the program and get right with God. But then there will be others who have been warned and they've been warned and they've been warned and they've been warned and they are not going to change. Those represent her spiritual children. And that's what's being talked about when Jesus says, and I will strike her children dead. I'm going to judge her. And those who will not separate from her, I'm going to kill them. Truth point number one. The only remedy to sin is repentance. That's it. There is no other remedy. True, godly repentance. I've been wrong. I admit I'm wrong. I turn from my wrong. And I embrace what is right. And I put my eyes and my faith in the Lord Jesus and his Holy Spirit to help me to overcome that wrong and to walk in the path of righteousness. The only remedy to sin is repentance. When we repent, the good news is, is that the Lord forgives and restores. And can I say to you, there is no sin save rejecting Christ that cannot be forgiven. So when you're thinking to yourself, when you're starting to feel that movement of the Spirit, and, and you're thinking to yourself, I, I can't go back, I just can't go back, that's the voice of the devil. That is a lie. You can go back. But I do want to warn you as well that if you keep saying no, 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 there very well may come a time when the door closes. 
When we refuse to repent, we put the patience of Christ to the test, running the risk of physical death for the believer. You know, the believer, listen to me, the believer cannot face spiritual death. A true child of God cannot face spiritual death. Jesus did that for them. They will not face spiritual death, but they could come under the judgment of physical death. In other words, you have been a reproach to my name long enough. I'm taking you out. To go to hell? No. But I'm taking you out. You're, you're done. I can't allow that anymore. But the unbeliever, they can face physical death, and of course that would bring upon them uh, the, the, um, the consequences of spiritual death. Wow. I'm, so, well, we have communion today, and I don't want to put that in a bad place here for time. So, so why is Jesus so adamant about repentance or death? Why is he so worked up about that? Truth point number two. When sin or false teaching is allowed to go on without repentance, both will spread to other believers and or churches doing damage to their gospel witness. That's why. That's why he's so adamant about repentance or death. You think, you think your sin is yours. And it is. But your sin impacts others around you. You know what's going on over in the Middle East right now? Right? You do? Don't you? Yes or no? All of that is because of the sin of Abraham listening to his wife, taking Hagar and having Ishmael by her. And what you have over there is you have the sons of Isaac and the sons of Ishmael. Fighting over the blessing. So don't you dare think that your sin is just yours. That sin is still impacting us four, five thousand years later. And it's ripping our world apart. Chapter, verse 23, the last part. Oh, no, I, I didn't give you the second part of truth point number two. Uh, Jesus is dead serious about the purity of his word, the genuineness of our profession of faith, and the transformation of our lives toward his image. He's dead serious about that. And we see that in verse 23, the last part. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. Verse 24 and 25. As bad as everything was, we know from the opening verses that not everything was off in Thyatira. There were believers there who had not bought into the heresy, and Jesus has words of instruction and encouragement for them. Verse 24. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say... I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. Verse 24 reminds me of Jesus' comments 
recorded in Matthew 11, 28 through 30, where he said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Truth point number three, contrary to what some say, Jesus is not a hard taskmaster looking for ways to make life more difficult by piling on one impossible situation after another. You may find yourself under that pressure, but that's not coming from him unless he's judging you. But he does, no matter what, demand our trust in him. We find that his followers in Thyatira were under the gun, as they say, by the community who did not understand them and thus did not want to tolerate them. And they were under the gun in the church by a false prophetess and her followers who were attempting to hold Jesus in one hand and to the sensuality of the world in the other. And so Jesus says simply this, hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast what you have till I come. Simply this, be faithful unto me. Truth point number four, Jesus does not demand success from his church, but he does demand faithfulness. He does demand faithfulness. Well, verse 26 through 28, Jesus' letter concludes with words of encouragement for those whose faith remains in him. And that is the identification of those who conquer. When you see that in there, those who conquer, those who continue, uh, he's talking about those whose faith remains in him to the end of their life, to the end of the age. To them, Jesus says, I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. The word rule there means to shepherd, to help, to guide, to take care of. And this shepherding that he's talking about there comes with the full authority of Jesus, whom the scripture declares will rule the nations with a rod of iron in the millennial kingdom. What does that mean, he will rule them with a rod of iron? It simply means this, that he will ensure by whatever means necessary that righteousness rules on the earth. And he will make sure by whatever means is necessary that unrighteousness will be swiftly identified and dispatched. That's what it means. But not only, oh, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, tells us that the redeemed of Jesus, they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So we're part of that shepherding of the nations. But not only that, Jesus also says that he will give his overcomers the morning star. Now what is that? Well, in Revelation 22:16, Jesus gives us the identity of the morning star. He says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He gives us himself. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So believers, how is your faithfulness? Are you walking in step with Jesus or are you wandering off course? 
Are you committed to the pure purity of the faith once delivered to the saints, or are you tolerating teaching that is questionable? The church in Thyatira was tolerant of error, and this brought judgment from the Lord upon them. And we don't want that. To avoid it, here's what we need to do. We need to test everything that we receive from any teacher, including this one, against the inerrant word of God. That's how you avoid that. That which is in alignment, you embrace. That which is out of alignment, you reject vehemently. And remember this, that it's not just your spiritual condition that's at stake, but it's your children and your grandchildren. Because what you suck down and believe, you will live out. And they will follow you. So it's not just you, it's those around you. So let's make sure that our doctrine is pure, that our practices are aligned with the word, and that our teaching is honoring to Christ and spiritually beneficial to others. Before I close, I just want to say this to my friends who have yet to embrace Jesus as their Savior. I need to tell you the truth about yourself. You are living currently under the condemnation of God for sin. That's where you are. But the good news is, the gospel truth is, is that God's son Jesus came, he took on flesh, he went to the cross to bear the dead of sin, he rose from the dead to make life, eternal life, possible. And the scripture says that whosoever will come and call upon the name of the Lord in faith believing and repentance will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from the penalty and the condemnation of sin. If you have questions about that and want to talk about it further, my contact information is on the screen. If you reach out, I'll reach back. We'll get together and talk, and I believe the Lord will meet you where you are. Father, thank you for this opportunity to share the message. And now as we transition over into communion, I just pray that your spirit will guide us and help us, strengthen us. May we truly worship in this time, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.